I want you to imagine this morning that we have an audience with Jesus Christ. And um, someone asks this question of the Lord. Who are the blessed in life? I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 because in that text, Jesus answers the question for us. It's one of the key questions of life, really. Think about it. We have a lot of interesting definitions of who we think are blessed. But Jesus answers the question for us. Who are the blessed? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, begins this way. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you well this is the word of the Lord our father this morning we ask that you would revisit our hearts with the truth of the blessed defining that our lives importantly father we ask that we would cooperate with the work that you intend to do in our lives as you lay out for us these characteristics these traits of those who are part of your kingdom and so our father this morning um, as we uh, have opportunity to open up a case for Christ-like living citizenship in the kingdom of Christ uh, the countercultural values that Christ has presented to us. Lord, I pray that we might cooperate with what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. I pray that we might benefit from your word, not simply have an intellectual exercise, but once again, Lord, we realize that, that Christ, after stating this, said, blessed are those who practice and teach these things. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us to practice what you have for us and not to resist the work of God's Spirit in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We need to understand a little bit of the backdrop as we pull ourselves into this particular section as we kind of motor ourselves through Matthew. In verse 17 of chapter 4, uh, Jesus really talks here about the central message, his central message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He began to preach this, it says, uh, to make way, in other words, for his way. That's the central message of, of the Gospels, is, is, is Christ came presenting his way and saying, make way for my way. In other, and then he goes on to say, rep, he says, repent, which means do a 180 degree turnaround 
uh, because Jesus' kingdom is bearing down on you and you want to get in on it. You definitely want to get in on it. And then after that, as we move through, uh, verse 18, he calls his first followers. And then uh, uh, starting at verse uh, uh, 23, he uh, conducts a ministry tour to demonstrate to them and us that, that he means kingdom business. That's who Jesus is. And then after that, he presents eight traits that are uh, common to kingdom citizenship. Now, I want to make something really clear here this morning. This does not answer the question, how to get blessed. This answers the question, who are the blessed? And those are worlds apart, those two questions. Uh, this is uh, very important for us to see here because... Um, Many uh, Christians have been marooned on the sidelines of discouragement, uh, believing that somehow they have to manufacture these characteristics or they won't be blessed. Uh, that couldn't be further from the truth. This particular presentation here is Jesus' descriptions, uh, declarations of who the blessed are on the basis of the grace of God. Uh, the blessing produces the behavior. The behavior is not self-effort attracting the blessing. It's important for us to understand that it's, even in a couple of the translations, they've missed the point here. It doesn't say God blesses the poor in spirit. That's not a, an accurate translation at all. It's not even close. First of all, the word God is not there. It simply states blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, the poor in spirit are the blessed ones. Uh, the, those who mourn are the blessed ones. And that's, that's the construction of this text. And then each of them offers the future blessing, present or future blessing, as a result of being among the blessed. And, and it's important for us to see this. They're not commands. They're not imperatives. Jesus is not saying, be poor in spirit. He's not saying, uh, mourn. He's not saying, get meek. He, these are not imperatives. They're not commands. They're descriptions declarations, observations on how God views certain life behavior on the basis of his blessing upon people's lives. And it's for that reason that Jesus calls a huddle of those he's, he's called into his kingdom already, the disciples that he's already called to come and follow him, and now he says to them, as a result of coming to me, of receiving me as Savior and Lord of your life, of, of entering into the, the culture of the blessed, here's what blessed are like. And um, so this is... I. It's, I hesitate, well, it's, it's hard to say this to me and to us, but this is the normal standard of behavior of those in the kingdom of Christ. And the reason I say that's hard to, to say is because um, wrestling in the study this week was, uh, um, was an exercise in, in uh, great frustration when I looked at the characteristics and nature and realized, wow, okay, you have a lot of work to do in my life, Lord. And I think most of us can look here and see that. But Jesus calls his disciples to a huddle and, and lays it out for them. Over in verse 20 of chapter 5, he, he points out that, that um, for the most part, they had been staring at the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law and the, and the scribes and, and getting their, um, 
their uh, example from them. And, and Jesus is basically saying, you think they're the ones who are blessed. But then he says in verse 20, no, no. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll not be in the kingdom, a, 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 cult, a citizen in the culture of Christ. So it matters that we understand what Christ is really stating here. He is talking about those who are already his and what characteristics they will manifest. A better way of living. Uh, what we need to, um, I think, uh, pay attention to in, in, um, as we've introduced the idea that there was a contrast that Jesus was portraying here by saying, it's not like them, but rather this is the cultural norm of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It, it, it I think, is important for us to, to understand how great the divide is between the culture we live in and the culture that Christ is calling us to on the basis of his grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So just how great a chasm is there between the culture we live in and the one that's called for here? I mean, just a surface look at what Jesus is teaching uh, tells us that the culture has fallen far short of the glory of God. But what, are the, what do the studies reveal? What does the study of our culture portray? Daniel... Yankelevich, a professor of New York University, wrote a book entitled New Rules, Searching for Self-Fulfillment in a World Turned Upside Down, in which he documented a seismic shift in social values that happened in the 70s. I don't think this will shock most of the people who are my age who are here this morning with that, that the 70s were a, a major shakeup. But let me just point out to you what he discovered. This is a secular study uh, by a professor. Uh, the culture before the 70s stressed duty to others. That was the primary cultural value. In fact, getting caught being selfish was, in those days, before the 70s, an ugly embarrassment. But in the 70s, there was a major cultural shift, he points out, from duty to others to duty to self. Our own needs, our own interests, all took front and center, far out eclipsing duty to others. This, by the way, is the culture that is now fundamentally in charge of our world. Because the people who grew up in the 70s being shaped by this seismic cultural shift are for the most part the current leaders in various walks of life. And so you're saying, well, that, that's, that doesn't shock me. I, I live in the world. I, I get that. I know that's basically the values of the people around me. But, but how should that affect us here in the church? A professor from University of Virginia by the name of James Hunter, who is the professor of sociology and religious studies at that university and considered um, in North America as an expert in evangelical trends, uh, picked up on Yankulovich's study and using the same questionnaire in the early 90s, went to 16 Christian colleges and seminaries across North America and distributed the questions with respect to this cultural value. 
and his results were horrifying. Uh, the even, he found that evangelicals, and I might add, uh, I would guess, the, some of the best of our evangelicals who are training in seminaries and Christian colleges, were more committed to self-fulfillment than their secular counterparts. You can find this in the Moody, Moody Journal in, in 1993. And he writes this, that self-expression and self-realization compete among evangelicals with self-sacrifice as a guiding life principle. That self-fulfillment isn't a byproduct, it is now the committed higher ideal. I would suggest to you that that explains why freedom eclipses holiness among many evangelicals today. I would think that it also explains why consumerism also eclipses discipleship. So we can see that, in fact, within our own evangelical world, our own evangelical setting, that Jesus is calling us to a countercultural movement within our own family by this teaching. We're literally back to the cultural climate that Jesus was addressing where self-fulfillment was more important than God blessed. And he's making a call as he calls his disciples to sit down before him and saying, this is the blessed life. This is the life that I've, I've come to present to you. This is the life that you have now entered into as a kingdom citizen by the grace of God through salvation. And, and so... Um, He's really saying that unless our way of life surpasses that of those around us, we will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a serious matter. That's the seriousness of the teaching here. Uh, interesting, Yankulovic, who, uh, as I said, was a, is a secular professor, uh, wrote this, When you find yourself, what will you do with yourself? And I think that's a, a pretty profound statement and worthwhile thinking through. Well, as we move our way into the text this morning, I, I think it's important for us to also uh, uh, define the word blessing, the word blessed. By the way, it's not finding a favored parking spot. All right? The people who are handicapped already have that all sewn up. So... It's not, that's not the blessing that we're talking about here. Blessing's not measured uh, by external circumstances, really. It's not measured by internal feelings, aren't you glad? It, rather, blessing, the, the idea of blessing is measured or is, is, is in reference to our status and relationship with the living God. That's what blessing is fundamentally all about. And Jesus here is talking about what that looks like. To be in a state of blessing from the Heavenly Father. To be in a state of blessed. It's not a new quest for self-fulfillment. God forbid that we would see it that way. It's not a, a behavior that somehow now you get this list, we teach it, and somehow you copy it from the outside. It, it's not good behavior to merit God's favor. That can't be done. Uh, it's the serious business of really belonging to God and what that looks like. That's what this is all about. This is the fruit of life being transformed by the Holy Spirit 
who indwells us at salvation. This is a vibrant, Holy Spirit-driven life. God's transforming grace. Uh, so this morning, I want to look at eight traits from the text. Jesus uh, took about a minute and a half to tell you them. I'm going to take about 30 minutes because he's just so much more superior to me. And it's going to take me a, a bit more time. But, but I'm going to look at, at counter-cultural characteristics that are shared in common by the real blessed of our world. And this is not a buffet. This is not a smorgasbord. As, as with the fruit of the Spirit, uh, we're expected to be manifesting by the work of God's transforming Spirit in our lives these characteristics. All of them. This is not for the spiritual elite. This is to be the common traits of those who are in the kingdom of God. Uh, so you can see that the Spirit of God, at least I can say from my life, has lots of work to do. We are going to talk to you this morning about Jesus' peeps. Uh, that's how we would narrow. This is what this is all about in, in this particular text. So let's dig in here. And the first of them is poor in spirit. And, and this really launches us into the reality uh, of being in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, poor in spirit is the, is the starting point. Uh, reality for all of those who will come to faith in Christ. Those who recognize their material, their emotional, their physical poverty and turn to God for help rather than looking for other ways to medicate their self-confident pride. It is um, by uh, God's amazing grace that he allows or enables us to recognize our spiritual poverty that we might turn from our pride and invite the Lord Jesus Christ to come into our lives and change us. That's what poor of spirit really looks like. That's what it really means. It's, it's, uh, we, we can't change ourselves into these behaviors. We need to recognize that our spiritual bank account is, is bankrupt and we need to invite the, the living God to deposit into that account his greatness and his grace. And so he does and so he's willing. And this begins us on the journey. What we really need to understand is that pride in intellect or in behavior or in charity or in possessions is the, is the great obstacle and roadblock to coming into the kingdom of Christ. And it is those who have manifest the grace of God to recognize their poverty of spirit who come into a relationship with the living God. And in that, in that um, recognition, live a life that Christ can transform. It is daily recognizing our poverty, daily recognizing our need for God, daily turning to Him, daily rejecting the pride that easily besets us and, and turning to Him in poorness of spirit and saying, oh God, how much I need you. Now, now the Word of God says in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 6 that someday the leopard will lie down with a young goat. That's the Word of God. That's, that's a promise of the Word of God. Now... Let's suppose we take that at face value and we stick a young goat in a cage with a leopard right now. How long do you think that young goat is going to be alive? I give it about five and a half seconds until that goat is done. Well, wait a second. The Word of God says a leopard will lie down with the young goat. Yes. But not until God changes the character and nature of that leopard. And that's the same as it is with salvation. 
Not until God changes us, does our, until we recognize the need of, our cha- of change by God, will we actually see and experience the change of God in our lives. That's what poor of spirit really looks like. We, the poor in spirit value Messiah's reign most in their lives. They find loyal to the Messiah a very appealing choice. They love the alternative kingdom of Christ. And as a result, what is the future and present blessing that is offered to those who are blessed to experience poor in spirit? When loyalty to Christ eclipses all other values, you have found someone blessed with citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. That's that's an amazing and, and profound place to be. A citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We need to understand that that's a present reality to those who have faith in Christ. That's what this teaching is all about. It's the present reality and the future reality yet to be realized. We have this very, uh, very real citizenship now in the culture of Christ. And we have this great um, realization to look forward to, to the fullness of what it means to be a citizen of the eternal kingdom uh, of heaven that is yet to come. And so that's being poor in spirit. The, the second are mourners. Who are the mourners? Blessed to be mourners, those who are more often than not grieved about the state of disloyalty to Christ in their own lives and in the lives around them, rather than living for the cheap laughs of hedonistic pleasure-seeking. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 136, uh, stated this, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for the law of the Lord is not obeyed. Those who are the blessed, those who really know who Christ is, who have received him into their life, who are citizens of, uh, presently citizens of heaven, look around at their own lives and the lives of people around them and are mourning in their hearts for how far we have fallen from the glory of Christ. Sin is not funny. People who are damaged, it's not funny. People with broken lives are not funny. Uh, Spiritual apathy is not funny. And if we're honest and if we understand and if we have received God and we know about his kingdom, we mourn as we look around at, at the culture around us and how far it has fallen from the great ideal that Christ offers to us. And if we're honest about ourselves, we look in, a, in the mirror and we realize how far we have fallen from the great life that God promises to us and offers to us. I find myself mostly mourning after every sermon that's presented because it seems to me, as a general rule, there seems to be so little passion for the things of God. There seems to be so much rebellion towards the truth. I think in my own life of how much resisting I do of the Lord, there seems to be so much hurt around us, so much brokenness around us, and and there's, there's this sense of mourning. Oh, God, how much longer? But the good news of this is those who mourn will be comforted When will we be comforted? Do we realize that the blessings of Messiah's comfort have already begun? That's the good news. In this present time, uh, when Messiah came and came as Savior and and rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, he's already started to to sweep the earth clean of those things that cause pain and hurt and destruction. He is already the one who has come to bring the 
garment of praise and the oil of gladness. He has started God's stopwatch until that day when Christ will return and set everything right. And there will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. There will be no more crying. There will be no more dying. But in the meantime, our hearts are broken as we see people around us uh, with, with no regard for the great love that God has demonstrated to us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So blessed are the mourners. They are the ones who get it, God says, Jesus tells us. They understand the nature of, of the culture around us. Blessed are the meek, thirdly. Those who direct any power they may have toward the single goal of leading others to Christ's interest rather than aggressively, assertively pushing themselves to the front of every line. This is a rather uh, interesting characteristic of those who are the blessed. The blessed, it would seem, are just the opposite of those who are in charge of the landscape of, uh, uh, of, of our, our lives. It's the aggressive the assertive, the pushy, who seem to be the ones who inherit all the positions, all the placements. But Jesus says, no, it's the meek in his kingdom. Now, meek is not weak. That's not it at all. If, if we, can certainly, we certainly know that, that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated this quality in his life as meek. I don't think any of us would suggest that the living, sovereign God of the universe is weak. But rather, this idea of meekness is, is the power uh, that God gives us by living within us, directed, controlled by God for Christ's interests and not our own. We're not asserting our own aggressiveness or our own... Uh, uh, pushiness, but rather enduring with great patience those around us for the single goal of leading people toward God's purposes. Free of malice and vengefulness. And by the way, I might add, this to me is how you know, I think, that the preceding two qualities are not put on. Perhaps we can put on the idea of our spiritual bankruptcy or perhaps we can pretend to be mourners and sorrowful about sin around us but but it's really difficult to pretend to be meek because this is not something that you can discipline yourself toward this is not something that you can neither of the other two but or any of them for that matter but this is certainly not something without the strength of God that any of us can manifest because our natural instincts are generally to push toward aggressiveness and assertiveness and, and try to get to the front of every line and, and what's the reward for this what's the the future blessing for this it says here that um, the meek will inherit the earth what the aggressive and what the assertive and what the pushy presently seem to have is all coming to us someday. The blessing of having it all in eternity. It, the Lord will flip it all over and give it to the meek. That's the value of, of, of responding to the transforming work that Jesus wants to do in our lives. There's a fourth here. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those whose most basic cravings. When we talk about hunger and thirst, 
we are talking about the most basic cravings of the human life. And that's what Jesus is saying here, that at the most basic level of your life, the blessed crave the right ways of Christ. From the very inner being, from the very inner places, rather than the more pragmatic or practical ways of man. Which, by the way, uh, the culture around us have cravings and desires. But if we are paying any attention, what we mostly notice is they never seem to be satisfied. And there's a reason for that. Human beings created in the image of God, all human beings created in the image of God, were made to be satisfied in God alone. There is no satisfaction ultimately for any cravings outside of God. And so Jesus says here that the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is to transform your cravings and your desires and your hunger for the right things of Christ, the right ways of Christ. There is a sort of a two-pronged idea here to wholly do God's will from the heart. Not manifest from the external out, uh, from the outside, but rather it is something that wells up from the inside of you by your new nature in Christ. And then because righteousness is always connected to the word and the terminology of justice, we combine this holy desire that, the God's, that God's will might be manifest in our lives and around us to agonize for justice everywhere. These two work together in this idea of hunger and thirst for righteousness. It occupies life at the most basic level for God's people. Jesus says, you want to know who the blessed are? They're the ones who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the right ways of Christ from the heart and justice everywhere. Really longing for the way it will be someday. Because someday it will be all about the right ways of Christ. And it will be all about perfect justice. And it's his righteousness that we are seeking. That's what Christ says. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. It's his righteousness. Not self-righteousness. Not righteousness that we generate personally by good works or social action. Although those things may be good. We're talking about paying attention to the right ways of Christ. It's not about um, satisfying ourselves with the uh, uh, minimal uh, uh, attention to the letter of the law. It was shortly after that, this is one of the great sermons that Christ preaches, when he starts talking about uh, lawful things like murder and adultery and divorce and and, and making promises and and, uh, revenge and all of those kinds of things, where he says that uh, uh, the Father in heaven is not going to be satisfied with some external attention to the minimal uh, minimal attention to to the letter of the law, but rather the purpose of the law. He started off with murder here, and he said, you, you've heard it long ago, said, that, you know, long ago, do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's true, Jesus said. But, but the point of that commandment is not just, just to say, well, uh, I, I shouldn't murder anybody, and so I'm going to self-discipline myself not to murder anybody because, because uh, I just shouldn't kill people. Jesus said, that's not good enough. That's, that's not the, the purpose of the law uh, of not killing people was because people matter to God. God loves people. 
And he wants you from your heart to not want to murder people, not because you're just keeping people alive, but rather because people matter to you and you care about people, the right ways of Christ. The purpose of the law and the blessing that is promised future, some present, is filled, satisfied. If you're hunting for, if, you, if you're looking for an antidote to empty, to the sense of emptiness in life, Jesus said, this is what kingdom citizens enjoy. They enjoy the fullness of God who fills them in every way. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, then there's the merciful. Those who are moved to do what people need and not what people deserve, rather than unmoved and harsh and cold. I must admit, this was a real tough one for me this week as I started to watch the Olympics. I, I'm, I'm struggling to be merciful for any country other than Canada. Anybody with me? Other than an odd American who's out here this morning? If you are, I love you, love you, love you, but I want you to lose everything in the Olympics. How's that for unmoved, harsh, and cold? The merciful are forgiving, kind, long-suffering, Willing to be wronged toward the guilty, toward those suffering and needy, toward those who are annoying and hurtful. And how is it that we, the blessed, are able to enjoy this manifest work of God in our lives? It is only if we're willing to look in the mirror and realize that for the most part, everyone around us who's annoying and bothersome and guilty and troubling and hurtful and harmful is just like us there but for the grace of God go I this is to those who who are honest about their hearts and their lives and look in the mirror and realize that God has given this amazing gift of his blessing to be merciful to extend mercy to others and what's the extended blessing on this what's the future blessing you'll receive mercy those who are merciful receive mercy anybody here not need any mercy we need mercy the Spirit of God helps us to grow in mercy that's what the blessed life looks like and in return Jesus says to us and you I promise will be treated with mercy not what you deserve, but what you need. That's a powerful thing. When Christ saw the shepherdless masses, he didn't look upon them with disgust. It says in the Bible, he looked upon them with compassion. Yes, our culture is dark. Yes, our culture is rebellious toward God. Yes, our culture is breaking people's lives. And yes, we have a message of mercy. That our God forgives and is merciful. There's a sixth one, pure in heart. 
those whose heart is single focused on Christ and moral purity rather than political correctness and compromise. This um, whole idea of pure in heart is an undivided loyalty to Christ. It, it really, there's two sides to this. There's sincerity toward Christ and holiness. You can tell, by the way, when one is missing by examining the other. It, it, it usually works this way. If moral purity is missing in your life, so will devotion to Christ be. It's not very hard to, to interpret our lives, to analyze one another and to say, hey, brother or sister, you gotta, you got to pull this thing together because when devotion to Christ disappears, it usually isn't far behind that our moral purity will slip. They work together. Sincerity with, before Christ and purity of life. Holiness of life. When the inside is rich, the outside is really, really effective. And the teaching here about this undivided loyalty is quite simply this, that those who have dabbled in a little religion and some religious-driven self-discipline have no such blessing promised. This is total, committed, undivided loyalty to Christ. Jesus is not talking about those who somehow compartmentalize their moral life and their religious activity. And we can be very, very guilty of that. This means both have to be together. We can't compartmentalize our lives. There's sincerity and purity. They function together or they don't function at all. And those, it says in the promise here, who are set on the person of Christ with undivided loyalty and purity of heart will see Christ. How important is that? Isn't that what we've been longing for? To see him face to face, the one who died for us? And why is it that we will be promised to see him if we are among the blessed and our lives live with purity and sincerity before him? Why is this promise to us? Because it says in the word of God, without holiness, no one will see God. He is willing to see us because of whose we are and the transformation that's taking place in our lives. There's a seventh, and that's peacemakers. Those who occupy their lives, bringing factions to encounter the life-changing principles of the Prince of Peace. Rather than grasping for every bit of competitive gain. Quite honestly, this is how you prove that you really are sons of the Prince of Peace. You don't stir up trouble. In every setting, in fact, you're the one who brings reconciliation to warring factions. Not just to get along, but rather because the call in all of this is, is to take people to a place of wholeness and completeness in Christ. That's where peace is found. It's peacemaking is gospel-focused interventions in people's lives. The good news of peace with God. That's the place it has to start. It's peace with God and then peace with others. And uh, as I already said, the promise and the blessing of this is you will be called sons of God. This is truly God-like work. And finally, he closes it off by saying that some of the people who you might not think are citizens of the kingdom of heaven because of how they seem to be treated in life, you would be mistaken. He talks about those who are persecuted for loyalty to Christ. 
those who because of their loyalty to Christ take hits for righteous choices rather than blending in and hiding to be popular. Don't ever trade righteousness for popularity. Now we're not supposed to be obnoxious. But we should beware when all people speak well of us. Do you know who are the most popular in the Old Testament? The false prophets. Because they tested the wind of opinion and popularity and then prophesied what the people wanted to hear. Jesus said the prophets of old were persecuted because they spoke truth. Called for righteousness. And so it will be for you. If you call people on their sinfulness, they might hate you. They might say all manner of evil about you. They might falsely accuse you. They might say things that you didn't even say and blame you for saying them. Because if people love darkness, they will hate agents of his light. But once again, he said, what is the blessing for this? You're in good company. If you are being persecuted for the right ways of Christ, you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So don't be surprised. Well, there they are. Eight common traits of those who are blessed, not to get blessed. And because you are blessed and God is changing your life, there are eternal blessings that await you. So, how do we wrap this up this morning? Well, there are two types of people in here today. Some who have never entered into the kingdom of heaven. They have never responded to the message of salvation, never received Christ. Can I point out to you that, that this could be your biography? This could be your story. The promise here is from Christ, if you, if you come to me, and, and are received, and you receive me, you will be welcomed into my kingdom, and this will be the amazing makeover of your character as you are blessed. But then there are others of us here this morning who are saying, you know, I look at this list and I, I know I've come to know Christ, but I'm not really, I don't feel like I'm manifesting very close to this, this characteristic, um, these traits at all. I have a long way to go. Listen, can I encourage you? This is not an outward act. This is not about self-discipline. This is about increasing your willingness to yield yourself to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, to lean in to loyalty to Christ and see Him do His miraculous and amazing transforming work of your life. This is not a cause to be discouraged. This is a cause to be encouraged. This is where it can go. This is where it must go. This is where it will go. If you yield your life to Christ, he will change you. He will make you like this. He will shape you. Don't, don't fight against the grand changes that God wants to make in your life. The, the disciple journey begins from a platform of blessing. The Beatitudes are a healthy look at where the Holy Spirit is taking your character and what you have to look forward to. This is where God's blessing is taking you. Join it. Cooperate with what God wants to do in your life. Father, I pray this morning 
as we now are required, having been fed the Word of God, we're required, Lord God, now to invite your Spirit to help us to digest and apply this truth. This is the bio of the blessed. Oh God, I pray that you would, by your patience and grace, increase, uh, increase our Christ-likeness, increase our lives to more reflect who the blessed are, that we might profoundly impact the culture around us. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. There would be two ways to mishandle this great truth today. And that would be fighting against what God wants to do in your life or trying somehow to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and say, I'm going to be more like the Beatitudes. This is the work of God, the power of God in us at work. This is what yieldedness to God produces in our lives. So if we're wondering, because God is committed to transforming our character into these character traits. So if we're wondering about some of the strange things that are going on in our lives, the things that we find very frustrating, the things that are, that are distressing and, and hard for us, God is at work transforming you in these areas of our life that we might truly manifest the character and nature of the blessed. He says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And he is making us more and more able to represent him as Christ-like citizens of his kingdom. So be loyal to him and he will change you. Perhaps some of you are struggling immensely in this area of your life. Pastors are going to be here at the front. We'd love to pray with you this morning. Just call on the power of God to go to work in your life as you yield to him. Come and visit us. We'll pray with you right after the service. Father, I pray this morning and thank you. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for what you've taught us. Thank you for the work you're doing in our lives. Thank you for your patience and grace. And oh God, I pray that we would cooperate with what you want to do. That we might be more and more like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing these grand blessings await us in eternity as well. For Jesus' sake, amen.